Welcome to the Utah Podcapalians, a podcast of the Diocese of Utah where we explore our unique church and our ministry in this unique land of Utah. I'm Craig Wirth of the Diocese, and you know today we are taking a look as winter is approaching. An average of about 60 to 70 people used to die on the streets in winter around the Pioneer Park area of Salt Lake City, died without the dignity, died without care, and died without somebody holding their hands. The problem was intolerable. A few people, including Debbie Thorpe of St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Salt Lake City, said enough is enough, and through her and a number of other people, we created a wonderful organization a wonderful ministry called the In-Between. A board member of the In-Between, a person who has created this as his ministry, the Reverend Canon Steve Anderson is with us today to talk about that. And as we approach winter or any time, that's just not acceptable to have people die on the street, is it? Never. And it was homeless people, people that were the most vulnerable, People who had illnesses, in pain, died lonely. And today, tell me about the in-between. Well, thank you, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. The in-between started, I believe, in about 2015 for exactly the problem you stated. Homeless people had nowhere to go um, for hospice care. Hospice care is widely available, but you have to have a facility to receive it in. You can't receive medical care out on the street. And so the hospitals would discharge folks who simply needed um, hospice care, but nowhere to receive that. So in between stepped in and provided them a home or a facility, they could receive the services that they needed. And those people, uh, about 50 or so at a time, are in the uh, in-between, and they're receiving care. They're, other than just the medical care, I know that there's efforts to reach out to families, their efforts to um, make people not just warm and comfortable, but to have people surround them. Why is that important? Well, particularly for end-of-life issues, these folks, some of them have had no family, no real home for 20 and 25 years. When they've reached a point where they have a terminal diagnosis, are in fact going to die, and need hospice care, that's an opportunity in everybody's life to kind of reconnect with family. One of the things the in-between staff has done so very well is to find those family connections. And we have reunited, in, in 9 out of 10 cases, they've reunited folks with their family when they've been estranged, which has been one of the wonderful blessings of this program in addition to just the place for care. People can't just walk into it. We want to make it clear, this is not a homeless shelter. This is not a place where it's getting towards evening and somebody looks for a place to go. There are wonderful facilities for that, um, but this is where you are referred to. You have to have a medical diagnosis, right? To, They'll to have to there. have a referral to get in. That's correct. And so this, uh, I know you say, well, my goodness, how is this any different than a shelter? It's not a shelter. How is it different? Uh, shelters provide uh, protection from the elements and basically care for people of all kinds, I suppose. These are medically necessary people that have to have some place to receive medical care and services, even if that's end-of-life services. When you deal with folks like this and you meet them and you f uh, find them and they're 
in the rooms and they're receiving that uh, end-of-life care and they're receiving family and now they have a comfortable surrounding as, as, you, as comfortable as you can make it. Um, what do they say to you? People that have been on the street and are now in a bed, in a facility, surrounded by people who are safe for them. It's the most remarkable thing. When I first found out about this in early 2015, that the notion of a hospice for the homeless was interesting. So I got my car and actually drove down to their first location they had on Goshen Street on the west side of Salt Lake City. And in there I met one of the residents. This man had been homeless for over 30 years. He was now facing end-of-life issues. He was uh, granted access to the facility. When I saw him, he was in this comfortable room with uh, warm blankets on a television. And uh, his dog was on the bed beside him. It has been the first home he had known outside of the street for more than 25 years. And when he passed away some months later, a uh, staff member between was there with him, holding his hand as he passed away. And that sold me. I know we can become, I'm sure, pretty emotional about some of these, where you have seen people that you've held their hands as they have died. Staff members have made sure somebody is with them and they die. You mentioned even this person's dog was with them. You're even there to care for their dogs. They know when you die on the street and if your only friend is your dog and you wonder what's going to happen to that. But you, there really is that caring that whatever possessions they have, whatever friends they have, and even their dog, this is not the end. They will be taken care of. They will be, absolutely. What does that mean? to know that there's something that will be passed on. And I know, for example, in a video that I've seen on the, the wonderful program, that one person was excited he had just received a hat from his father. He hadn't seen his father in years, and here he had a hat. And that that hat was maybe his only possession that from his family, and that when he dies, he even knew that that hat would be taken care of. Um, the word is dignity, I guess. Um, you see it also from a religious perspective. Um, does it give people something not just to live for, but to die for? It does. Regardless of what's happened in your life, when you come to the end of that life, every human life has some dignity. The families we've been united have been just remarkable stories. have been estranged for years. You've dealt with the homeless population. You will find there are some folks that are cantankerous and hard to deal with. Um, but regardless of who you are, you should have a place where you can pass away with dignity with somebody that cares about you. They will tell you that this place is their family and this is their home. This is not a facility. This is a home for them. Our guest is the Reverend Stephen Anderson, who is a uh, priest in the Episcopal Church, uh, works for the diocese, but also has been a board member of the in-between I think we all want to hear some stories, particularly as we come into winter, of maybe some people that have really touched your life, that you have known from the in-between. Um, um, is there a story that just somebody stops you on the street and says, Steve, tell us about somebody who was there, somebody who has touched your life. You mentioned the gentleman that had his dog. What are, what are some of the real people that we never saw, that maybe we saw 
as a homeless person on the street and when they came to the end of their life, it really touched your life. Well, thank you for asking. There, every month we have a board meeting, we have a story about a resident, a resident of the month kind of a thing, somebody that's been close to the staff, who's recently passed away. I've done a number of the memorial services for folks that have passed away there. Um, some are poorly attended. There'll be five or six people there. Others, there'll be 25 or 30 people there. But they, as a community, gather for these memorial services to honor each other. And again, it doesn't look or feel like a facility. It looks and feels like a group home of some kind, which it really and truly is. The other interesting thing that happens is even with um, a diagnosis that you're going to pass away, surprisingly, some people do recover. We have had people that were expected to live a matter of weeks that have actually recovered and got on to, re to re uh, gain their life, an active life in the community. Um, some of the staff there were once homeless folks as well. They've now become professionals in treating other, other homeless folks. It's important to know again that um, this facility has, does not cause homelessness. It tries to take care of homelessness. You don't have hundreds of homeless people hanging around it. It is a care facility well managed. And not that, um, you know, we are not going to bash being homeless because we're going to look upon it with dignity, but we are um, going to say that you have created a medical facility no different than any other real medical facility, have you? True, staffed with nurses and CNAs, yes. So what happens if a person has received a referral to go to this facility, to go to the in-between? What happens next? The staff will actually drive to the hospital or the discharging facility, pick them up, and take them there. And again, in addition to medical care and a place to live, take them to doctor's appointments. If some of them have uh, other appointments, uh, legal things going on, the staff runs them out and does that as well. Do medication checks, all of those things. Arrange for family visits. They literally have a, a concierge to take care of their, their health needs and their family needs while they're there. What are some of the family members? I'm sure that we've talked about some of the patients here for a few minutes and some of your clients, but what about the family members when you have witnessed uh, somebody who has been estranged perhaps from his or her family or just by the fact that they've been on the street, they just haven't had contact with that family, and suddenly that family shows up or you're able to contact them um, on both sides of the person who hasn't seen the family and the family, what happens? What are some of those moments that you've witnessed or have heard about? Some of those most poignant moments have been during these memorial services when I get a chance to meet the family. You'll find uh, daughters who've been reunited with fathers they've been estranged from for two or three decades. Uh, you'll find former spouses. You'll find brothers and sisters, in some cases some parents that have not seen each other for many, many years, often decades. And because of the dire circumstance, we're brought together at the in-between. It becomes a meeting place. Um, and some of those rifts from their past and their problems can be overcome um, for the first time in a very, very long time. I guess it's obvious that that's important. But from a religious perspective, from pastoral care, why is it not only important but imperative that when a person reaches the end of his or her life, that all those matters are resolved. 
it's hugely important. Um, life can be a long journey for most most people in some circumstance or another. To have viewed your life as a failure or you had problems in your life is a heck of a way to go, to go out of the game. Uh, life is much more precious than that. Uh, circumstances happen to people. The in-between has never been a judgmental kind of a place. People come from all sorts of backgrounds and circumstances. Bad decisions, absolutely true. And the cost for that is always high. To uh, resolve all those things um, with each other, is um, that's where God wants us to be. Again, our guest, the Reverend Steve Anderson, an Episcopal priest who has made much of his ministry to be part of the board of directors, but also to be with people at the in-between, a hospice for those who have formerly uh, been on the streets and um, watching uh, uh, an intolerable situation where dozens of people used to die on the street. Unfortunately, I'm sure there still are those who die on the street um, that uh, could have used a hospice situation. But we're trying to make a difference, I know. And some of the medical people, I think of Debbie Thorpe of uh, St. Paul's, that um, here is somebody that had worked in the medical community, still works in the medical community, who just saw that something wasn't right. And I know a number of folks have come in from the medical community. Uh, and, um, and it's when you begin to see this uh, interaction, and it brings me to wonder, what about the interaction, not only among the people such as Debbie, among you and uh, those that have been there, but among those 50 people at the in-between? Is there a support system? Do you find that their lives become enriched as the 50 people meet each other and deal with each other? They are. I got involved with this because of the mission of what was taking place there and the, the, the true humanity takes place there. That same thing is also appealing to other people. Everything from our nurse resources to our care people, the chefs, the cooks, the hundreds of volunteers that work for the in-between, all are drawn by that common sense of dignity and humanity for every human being. Um, it's become a place where they come to get filled up as well. We still need volunteers for all sorts of things. That's a well-organized program there. But the people that re respond and come to volunteer for the in-between will tell you this is also some of the best work they've done with their lives as well. And the people that are in the in-between that are um, receiving the hospice care, is there interaction among the people that are there that has been also fulfilling and worthwhile for them as they uh, meet and talk to others? Absolutely. They have programs there. They make jewelry. Matter of fact, one of the things that we do when we go out and have events and um, public information things is the residents there, while they're there, they have jewelry making classes, among other things, and we will often sell the jewelry that's been handmade by these folks before they passed away. And what a remarkable thing that is to give them a chance to work with their hands, to be creative, to create this piece of artwork and jewelry, and then uh, that'll be there for someone else long after they've passed away. One of the most neat things they do is to sell this, these beautiful jewelry items that have been made by the residents there when they were alive. So the uh, residents do work together in programs such as making jewelry. Do they also talk to each other about death? Do they talk about life to each other? Yeah, actually, they do, yes, because 
many of them, that's, they share that common destination. Um, all of us think about death from time to time. When you're there, it's, it's present. I'm sure that's a big part of what you think about every day. The facility, what are some of the things that um, the facility provides? Uh, we've kind of skirted around a few medical thing, doctor appointments, but within the facility, what are some of the services, everything from meals to, uh, you've mentioned some programs, but can you run us through just some of those facilities and services at the in-between? I will. There's been one major change in the last year. When this program was begun, it was begun as a uh, hospice for the homeless. It was the end of life kind of a thing. There's a whole other group of people that are simply very ill that are not um, imminently going to pass away, but they need to receive medical care so they will recover. And so it's been it also become now a respite center of the 50 beds presently at the in-between, roughly 25 are set aside for hospice, 25 for respite care, which is a little different matter. These people are expected to get better, but again, hospitals can only hold people so long once you've had your medical treatment. They need to be discharged to a home or facility. If you're homeless, that whole option is gone. So we've become a place where people can recuperate from serious, serious illness. And sometimes it takes a month or two, depending on the nature of what you've had. But some homeless folks I've seen that have had um, uh, serious leg wounds and injuries and very and gangrene, just very awful looking things, that simply could never get better because they weren't in a place that was just healthy enough for them to be in. They spend 60 days at the in-between, they end up being healthy people. One of the things that happens is, in those cases, the in-between also acts as an outplacement kind of a place. Find them uh, living quarters after they've discharged from there, find them jobs in that too. So really, they've kind of um, become this conglomerate of services helping people get resettled in the community too. Not everyone that comes there passes away. Some get better. And now because of the respite center, some are there intentionally to get better. They're not there to die. They're there to get better. One thing, if you look at the website, and I encourage that you do look at the website because it offers um, a lot of insight. And I know there's a lot of questions. And some people say, wow, what is really going on here and all that. And, and you find that it's a very peaceful, a very well-run situation. But you also see that you have received uh, community support from the city of Salt Lake, uh, some foundations, the Larry H. and Gail Miller Foundation, Sorensen Legacy, a number of um, charities that have um, identified themselves with uh, organizations in our community that are just top-notch to use, um, I guess, an old word. But this has become an organization that in a few short years has taken the eye of the community as a very valuable part of our community. I know the need is greater. What is the future? I mean, we've had more and more homeless people. Certainly, uh, situations haven't gotten much better on the street. Um, do you see, after watching this, that there's a need for more organizations like this? There's a need for bigger and better care and a, and a new emphasis on care for homeless? There is. When we opened the facility initially and then moved it again a couple of years ago, actually last year, there's always some angst on the part of neighbors. What's moving into my neighborhood? What's going to go on there? And um, there's always some concerns about that, and I, I appreciate that. 
And the notion is that you've all heard the term, uh, not in my backyard, the NIMBY thing, right? Where those things are fine things, I just don't want them in my neighborhood. At the in-between where they're at now on um, 13th South and 11th East, the neighbors there got together with a different philosophy and they formed a YIMBY group. Yes, in my neighborhood. And this very active group of neighbors around the in-between said, not only do we not care if you guys are here, we want you here. This is something we want to show our children. This is the kind of people we can be to have a facility like this in our neighborhood. That YIMBY group, I'm so very, very grateful for them. They conduct fundraisers, they do orientation, they do training, a lot of advertising. And again, this sprung up, this is not an initiative of the in-between or anybody that's the sponsor of it. This is neighbors that said, you know what? We come and see what you guys do. This is us. This is what we can be as a people. And it's just been very heartwarming. I'm kind of getting the opinion in this program here that you have gotten about as much out of that program as perhaps some of the people that are in it, that it has changed your um, ministry, that it's enriched your your life as a priest um, tremendously just to be around it. This is one of the best things I've done with my entire life. When I went and saw that gentleman in this room, comfortable and warm, with his dog on the bed with him, and I knew that a few weeks later when he passed away that he had somebody there with him and holding his hand, it doesn't get any better than that. This is the kind of people we can be. The kind of people we can be. You can always use volunteers. Always use volunteers, and you would they would love the opportunity. I would imagine you can use donations. Donations are always welcome. Um, it's come from a very small organization to a fairly complex organization. We do have some funding we had from the state this last year. Some of that's not very stable funding. It comes and goes. It, there's a lot of demands on the resources of the state. There's always a need for, for money and finances, and perhaps um, build some more places someday as time permits. I remember when it opened some time ago now that there was a lot of uh, naysayers. A lot of people said, this isn't going to work. It, in a few short years, not only showed that it can work, but that it can work well. And those the good people that worked on it and, and tirelessly fought to have the idea to get the various approval, many of them are still with the in-between. Um, and it has become a tremendous success. Do you think that it has exceeded the dreams and the hopes of people such as Debbie? I'm not sure about exceeding those dreams, but certainly have met those dreams. It was a grand dream to begin with. There, prior to this, there was no standalone hospice for the homeless anywhere in the country. There, many, hospi many hospice facilities had rooms, or a bed or two, for homeless people, but not a facility dedicated solely to homeless folks. This, we believe, was a first of its kind as nation. We now are the model for at least half a dozen programs taking place throughout the country, from the south to uh, California on the west coast. They're now imitating this model. So we have hit upon something here that the need is very great for, it's a sustainable model, and it just it does good things for our communities. So other organizations, uh, whether they're religious groups or civic groups or charities or municipalities have adopted this out of the Salt Lake model, huh? Yes, they have. That seems to be like like the need was always there, and and it shows, I guess, that people are 
good in that nobody wants to see somebody die alone on the street. And of course, as we talk about the homeless and we talk about the winter, we seem to emphasize these types of programs um, as winter comes on, but it's, it's just as needy in the summer, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's no better to die on the streets in the summer than it is the winter. Have we been able to reduce the number of people that are found dead on the streets since the in-between? Yes. Um, I believe the in-between, they've had something in the neighborhood over the years of about 50 to 60 people passing away, which is um, not 100% of the people that pass away on the street. Some people simply will not come in for treatment or take care of things. Um, so we put a dent in it. We created a place for people that are able to and want to can come in and have that care. Not everybody will choose to make that choice. Volunteers of America is a wonderful organization that one of the folks is on our board as well. And they keep track of the folks that are camped out above the Capitol building here in Salt Lake and other places that are fairly secluded. Um, people talk about uh, Pioneer Park in that area, and that, it's a lot of homeless folks there. But most of them live in encampments that are a little bit out from the city. Now Jordan River has quite a population out there. These Volunteers of America coordinators will check in with people, take them supplies and stuff, help them make connections with the in-between if they're in our circumstance where we can help them. So there's all kinds of folks that are trying to make those connections. I'm not sure the problem will ever go away. If you know of uh, maybe a relative, maybe somebody you're estranged from, but you know through the grapevine that they might be in need of the in-between, how would you go about uh, getting that type of care for a person? One, two things. Either have the person, if they're able to, to contact the in-between, or the interested person could call the in-between and explain the circumstances, and they'll get a caseworker assigned to that and to see if there's something we can do to help. And if not, we may know someone else that can. There are parallel programs, not exactly to this, but healthcare and those kinds of issues are the resources we can perhaps hook them up with. There probably is no more controversial issue than the homeless issue. We see it in the papers, we see it on TV news. Every single day, almost, there's an article or a story pro-con, the not in my neighborhood, mm. to put them in my neighborhood. Uh, it's a problem, a situation that simply isn't going away. It's not going to get much better. I mean, we would hope it would. But this is one little place that can make it better. And when you do embrace making something better, such as the homeless issue, how does that make you feel? Well, I feel it's an obligation, frankly. For, um, I've been given much of my life, has had most of us, comfortable life, um, and, and I've had family. You know, I've come to realize how important it is for folks that don't have family. They have no support system whatsoever. If they're discharged from a medical facility, if they've had tough financial circumstances and have no family, your only place is on the street. That's why the street numbers are so very, very high. If you don't have a family, the odds are really stacked against you having any kind of... Uh, assistance when you really need it. One thing that um, impressed me again in just knowing of the in-between, they use the words they just wipe the slate clean when you come in. It is not like, okay, did you qualify for this? Just take a look at medical services in general. And this isn't my attempt to knock the medical services of the city. There is no, you have to pass this test. There's no credit checks. There are no... Um, 
situations of uh, are you worthy, have you been vetted. Now certainly I do know that there is a, um, an issue that you, you can't exactly have violent people or whatever, but that, that by and large the, sw the slate is wiped clean when you come to that point of where your life is now about over. Is that right? It is, very much so. When you come there, you come in, um, under whatever circumstances you are, but you're accepted the way you are. Um, and everybody has a history, don't they? Um, but we just don't. Uh, you have a clean start there, that's exactly right. And finally, how long are people there generally? And, and do you find that actually they might be there longer than they would have been certainly in another type of medical facility in that they've received that care and um, they're, they're taken care of, which prolongs the life even though it's terminal? That's a very good question. We've had people been there as few as like two or three days before they pass away. I think the record is about a year and with an illness that uh, went away and came back, cancer will do that fairly often. Um, so between three days and 400 days, is kind of the range of folks. Most of them are there about two or three months. Either they get better or they pass away. And when you've gotten to know these folks and you do their service, uh, a memorial service, and again, I know you're an Episcopal priest, but it's whatever they want, isn't it? It service? is. This is not a, a, sec, uh, a particularly Episcopal service that I do. And there's been other folks that have done some of the services as well because they have a family preference. I've seen military honors done at these memorial services before. Many of these folks are veterans, as a matter of fact. Most of the gentlemen that passed away, I'd be willing to say more than half of them have been military veterans. Is that important to the family to know that there has been a service? It is. If we can find family, again, sometimes uh, the reunification with the family, it's the first thing this has happened in decades. And so, it leaves the family, even if this person's passed on the left, leaves this family in a much more healed place than they were ever at before. They go on with their lives with a better sense of things. Do others who are in the in-between participate in these memorial services? They do. It's a, it's a family. They uh, have family meals, and when there's a service, the place empties out, and people leave the rooms, and they come to the service for their brothers and sisters that are passing away. Well, at that point, with people passing away and services and knowing that they're not alone when they die and that they've been given that medical care, um, it's a wonderful program, and bless you for being part of it. Our guest, the Reverend Stephen Anderson, an Episcopal priest, but in this case also a board member of the In-Between, which provides hospice care and other care um, for those that have had really some tough breaks in life and critical needs for hospice care of the in-between, this is the Diocese of Utah's podcast, the Utah Podcapalians, where we take a look at our diocese, the unique church in Utah, that unique state that we all call home. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese. Thanks for listening.